Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Philosophy for Our Times, where we'll be paying tribute to the late philosopher Mary Mitchley, who passed away last week at the age of 99. Regular listeners of the podcast will no doubt be familiar with Mary, who appeared in one of our most popular episodes, debating the existence of the self with neuroscientist Colin Blakemore and fellow philosopher Simon Blackburn to ask, are you an illusion? Mitchley was an important and highly influential writer on ethics, and along with Peter Singer, was instrumental in defining the place of animal rights and human-animal relations within modern philosophy. In what seems a remarkable feat today, especially in an era of publish or perish, she published the first of her 19 books at the age of 59. Her curiosity and furious intellect remained undiminished even into her late 90s, with her most recent book being published a mere fortnight ago, as well as being an active contributor to the In Parenthesis Project. The project is an exploration of the remarkable lives and work of Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Iris Murdoch and Mitchley herself, the four women who met at Oxford during the Second World War and spearheaded what came to be known as the Golden Age of Female Philosophers. Meeting regularly at Philippa Foote's house, the four would discuss the orthodoxies and suspect ideas of the day, electrifying the ideas of Plato and Aristotle on human nature and virtue with a jolt of Wittgenstein. To the end, Mary herself was a bit averse to labelling the era as a golden age for women in philosophy, as the imbalance within the field remains a battle to be fought. I can't remember if it was yourself or if it was Joe who called your time at Oxford the golden age of female philosophy. Yes. So do you, do you think that's an apt characterization and well I suppose so but it must be a, 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 an apologetic name for as it were an accident mustn't it so, no, <laughs> <laughs> I mean you've got a golden age of something that should be when it's developed when it's being done all over so I mean four of us don't make a golden age <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose I mean, in, in the nature of careers there are always going to be more more men doing the um, obsessive things, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that really. It's just that, 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 that you know, they <laughs> can't stop. Um, I, 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 I would have hoped that after the war, sort of pretty quickly, there would be a better balance. But I don't understand that there has been, and people are still telling me that it's pretty bad, pretty hard to get through. But Mary's story and the story of her contribution to philosophy is one that will go on, inviting us to join in her efforts to make sense of the world that we all share. So welcome, we're going in search of the self this afternoon, and uh, apparently we have three selves up here with me uh, to debate the issue, or do we? Uh, this will be part of the subject matter for this afternoon. And um, the three people, the three selves or non-selves, are so distinguished, actually, uh, it would take me far too long to give a full introduction. So I'll just say one or two things about each. I've got on my right uh, Colin Blakemore, among many other things, former chief executive of the British Medical Research Council. 
uh, on my far left, Simon Blackburn, the philosopher, neo-Humian, and uh, a man associated with the New College of Humanities, which indeed is involved in partnership relationship with this event. And not, last but not least, uh, Mary Midgley, whose most recent book, I think, is called Are You an Illusion? So there's a real question there about whether she's here or not. Um, so the, the form of this hour, and it is now, we'll finish, uh, we'll finish by five o'clock, is um, fairly straightforward. I'll ask each of the three panelists here in this order, starting with Colin, Mary, Simon, to, as it were, set out their stall in relation to this question, in search of the self. I'll give them four minutes each. If they go on too long, I'll deprive them of selfhood altogether and pass on to the next person. And after those opening salvos, uh, we'll get into some thematic questions, I guess. Uh, the first of those will be, so what, what is the self? And, and even where is the self? So that's the first one. What is? Uh, where is the self? Second question, do you actually need a self? I mean, is it essential to, to being, to being a human, or indeed to being anything else? And uh, last but not least, a theme around neuroscience, essentially, and whether, that, uh, whether we need to turn to neuroscience to, to arbitrate on the question or not. I, I, I think there are two meanings of the word self, and it's important to unpack both of them. Um, one easier to understand than the other. The first meaning of self is, you know, this thing we have, this body with boundaries, with appendages that move around hands and legs and that have special properties, and we might deploy them to, to do things. Uh, and a self and a body that's in a particular place in the universe, here and now, um, that, and therefore sees and hears, feels uh, the world from a particular reference point. Um, that's, that's the self as I think... Um, a scientist can best explain the concept. But there's also a different concept, and that's perhaps a more interesting one from a philosophical perspective, the notion of, um, uh, of an agent, the idea that, we, that, that there is a we, an I, a, a character, a kind of helmsman or an operator in us, which is in some ways you know, difficult to account for in the same terms as the rest of the, the physical world. An agent that has intentions, wills, that can do things or decide not to do them, which is subject to moral and other sorts of pressures um, in, in, um, in determining what it will do um, in the world. And perhaps, you know, even kind of a, s a spiritual en entity, which is more than uh, the sum of all of its physical parts. Uh, I, th I think that, that there's a lot of evidence, and scientific evidence, that human beings actually do represent both of these forms of self in their, in their picture of of how they fit into the world around them. We have a model of, of our own bodies in our perceptual representation of the world. We, we know where we begin and end, although that beginning and ending, it turns out to be flexible. Maybe we'll talk about that, the fact that um, our understanding of where our bodies terminate and what the boundaries are is actually adaptive and can shift around with additional um, evidence. Um, we know about the content of our bodies. We know if we're hungry, we feel pains and itches and things from inside us. We feel the surface of our, of our um, body. Um, and, um, uh, and we treat those sensations as being, in some respects, different from sensations simply derived from the outside world. Let me give you an example. It, most people find it difficult to tickle themselves. 
Um, and, the, um, and the reason's very clear, that when you yourself initiate an action that might, be, that might feel tickly if someone else did it to you, this, your, the sensory parts of your brain that information, receive information from your skin are, set, are in advance set into a different receptive state. So they produce different sorts of reactions and, uh, um, with, with different understanding and different implications from the same, exactly the same physical sensation applied to your skin as a result of someone else or an automaton or whatever it is tickling, tickling you. So we distinguish between our own intended actions on ourselves and those produced from, uh, from outside us. Um, but we also represent that other sort of self. Uh, I, I, I use the word I, the word you, I, I use phrases like, I want to do this or that, or I intend to do this and that, even though I'm deeply skeptical about the logic of the way that I'm deploying that, that language. Um, I'm, I'm in the starting position, I think, for any discussion about this from a scientific perspective, is let's see whether one can account for what people do in terms of the same kind of causal relationships and, and, and predisposing influences that we know affect other parts of the universe around us, composed of the same kind of material that we're composed of. How far can we go in giving an account of ourselves and other people's actions in terms of all the complexity of the predisposing um, influences on them as as bits of the universe, without any kind of reference to things like freedom of, of will or intention other than using that word simply as a description of all the predispositions to, to action. So we capture both of these sorts of images of selves, ourselves as a biological entity, ourselves as agents. The interesting question, and I won't try and leap to my own conclusions about it is, why do we bother with the second kind of representation? Why do we think of ourselves as intentional um, agents? What's the value of that to us? The thing that struck me in the paper that the information he put out in advance is he uses the word epiphenomenal. Um, the self is not a distinct ontological item, it is epiphenomenal. That is, it is an illusion created by our brain. That word, as the dictionary tells me, is supposed to mean one-way causation. That is, uh, matter can cause uh, uh, mental things to happen, but mental things can't cause matter to do anything. This is perfectly clearly false, as we all know, every time that we try to do anything in the least difficult. When we want to do a, a, a sum, we'll have Einstein doing this, he's doing a problem. He sits down with a bit of paper before him. If he just waits for his brain cells to do it, he'll wait a long time. What he has to do is himself to do the work. That is consciously. And the whole business of agency involves our consciously taking on efforts which do then change the world. I'm pointing out that the world will be changed. The bit of paper in front of Einstein will look different, and the scenery of physics will look different by the time he's done this. I think that this, which apparently is usually put out as a factual statement that mind can affect matter can affect mind, but mind can't affect matter, is ridiculous. Have I got a minute or two? Still? Yeah, I think you've got another minute or two, yeah. Well, look, I do want to say that this is not just an academic squabble. It's part of a shift in the way we attend to the world by which we have got into the habit of attending more and more, thinking that we ought to attend more and more to specialised uh, 
scientific enterprises and the like, um, rather than self-knowledge. Self-knowledge is pretty important. Uh, the word self, by the way, didn't used to be used as the name of a sort of, of a noun like this as the name of something. Um, it's used for reflexive purposes, things like self-knowledge, self-control, and so forth. Um, we have, in principle, made it a virtue now not to attend much to our own motives and our own the part that we're playing in the world and to get away as quick as we can to some mechanical outside physical performance. I'm, it, you might think wasting time on this, but I think it's jolly important. It is not exactly a direct part, but it's a very important thing that arises. I agree with Mary that uh, epiphenomenalism is no good, um, but I agree with Colin that there is a, very, a great puzzle about the uh, difficulty of reconciling two ways of thinking about the self. One way is in uh, purely, as it were, in a scientific spirit, where I'm a great big bundle of tissue, it's well-organized tissue, it's living tissue, um, but there's no more to me than that. And nearly all philosophers would agree with that as an ontological claim, a claim about what, what there is on this chair. Very few philosophers indeed would say that as well as the great big bundle of tissue, which is organized and intelligent and so on, there is a soul or a spirit or a second entity. Uh, that's sometimes called substance dualism in the trade. And I think you'd have to go a long way before you found a substance dualist amongst professional philosophers. But that doesn't solve the problem about the difficulty of knowing how to think about things like freedom, agency, moral responsibility. And as Mary put it, the sheer fact that we do things, and we do them, uh, we don't seem to just find them happening to us. Now, at face value, there's not a huge difficulty here, because after all, suppose you've got something which is undoubtedly purely mechanical, like a chess playing program running on a computer. Um, there's a difference between the program bringing the queen out at a certain point, at a certain juncture in the game. The program does that. It's an active part of the program. And perhaps the pixels on the screen showing the queen coming out. That might be a malfunction. It might be an accident. It might be something that just happened to the computer. Um, but that wouldn't be the program doing it. So the activity of an organized um, uh, uh, machine capable of doing all sorts of things is itself a particular aspect of the way the world is. It mustn't be thought of as something else. And that's the message I'd like to get across, that we don't need a self on top of the organized living body of tissue any more than we need something on top of the computer running the program. The computer running the program is all, you've, all, all that Colin has on his lap. Um, but, of course, the computer does things. And furthermore, it enables other people to do things. And we're like that. I think if we see ourselves both in hardware terms, or what's jocularly called wetware terms, that is a, a, a lot of cells in the brain, um, but we also recognize that we run programs, and by running programs we do things which we wouldn't otherwise do without them. Now, of course, the notion of a program has to be stretched a bit because nobody actually programmed me, uh, literally, my parents educated me, my school educated me, my culture educated me. And in that sense, I'm the result of programming. But um, all the programming has set me to do certain things fairly well, 
like speak English, uh, failed to set me to do other things well, like speak Arabic, which I can't do. Um, so the programming is responsible for an awful lot and a lot of changes and a lot of what makes me who I am. The debate. Theme one. Well, okay, so you've heard some opening uh, comments from these speakers. Um, but I want to come back to something very basic, and I think I'll, I'll come back to you, Colin. I'm not going to go sort of slavishly up and down the panel like this all afternoon, but I, I'm going to come back to you, Colin, and say, so when you look at me, are you looking at a self or not? What is this? I'm happy to use the word, but, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, if I can start to answer my, my own rhetorical question at the end, um, I think the, the, the functional reason for having this, this curious model of ourselves as you know, independent agents with influences other than straightforward causal ones determined by our environment is that it works very well to support communication between us. It's much easier to communicate with you in terms that imply intentionality. Uh, what are you thinking of doing next? Am I supposed to speak before Mary in the next bit of the discussion? In other words, the, the, composite, the structure of language, the syntactical, syntactical language, is very intentional because it's neat. It encapsulates actions and the plans for actions very, very, but very I, I well. But I can have that but without having yourself. And, and I think this is important in responding to one of Mary's points. The way things feel to be doesn't necessarily... I mean, why should, why should evolution have delivered us with a nervous system which gives us an accurate interpretation? Whatever consciousness is about, whatever subjectivity means, why should it necessarily give us an, an accurate description of how things are really happening? It's a description which depends on our brains. There's a, a neural mechanism that accounts for the way that I feel about myself and I feel about you, but doesn't necessarily map accurate. There's no reason why it should on, on the physics of the world of which you're a part and I'm a part. Right, so I've got lots of the things that might make up a self, but I'm not sure if I've actually got a self, based on what you said. What, what about Mary? Am I, what are you looking at when you look at me? <laughs> I look at a person. Right. This is the unit in which social, social life, human social life and the social life of other animals goes on. There is a, a larger units, groups and so forth, but the basic unit is a person. And if you remark on the startling fact that it works quite well if we treat each other, treat each other as that, uh, mightn't there be a reason for this? Um, the, we, we, we treat each other as these whole social units. Um, if we're now asked to say, when I talk to Colin, I'm really talking to his brain cells. This is historically rather odd, isn't it? Because these brain cells were not known about until the last century or so, but the whole language of agency and action and selves has been developed and is jolly successful. Now, it would be a very odd chance, wouldn't it, if that happened to work and there wasn't any reason for it. What I, of course, am saying is that the, cell, the brain cells are there, we need them to talk, just as we need our legs to walk with, but they do not do it themselves any more than our legs walk on their own. So person is better than self. What, what would you say to that, Colin? Well, I mean, I agree, I agree with, uh, with Mary that you need bits of your body to, to do things and you need your brain cells to move your muscles. And if there is something else about how we work and operate and behave, 
which is not produced by nerve cells, then I'd love to know about it. I mean, I think, you know, we, we start to be able, I'm mean, trying to avoid being hyperbolic and arrogant about the successes of science, because that really will stir up Mary. But, but you know, so the progress of science, undoubted progress of science, is predicated on certain assumptions about the material world, about its properties, about causal relationships, and so on. And we're beginning, I think, to get an understanding of how brains make animals move around and do things and react to their environment and learn things. And, it's, and you know, we're... We're made of the same kind of stuff as animals. There's a genetic progression from animals to human beings. I don't think there's any reason to believe that magically we are different. Um, it's going to be a, an enormous task, but, but the scale of um, the thing we have in our head is kind of up to the physics, as it were, of explaining how we behave. You know, 10 to the 14 connections or 15 connections between nerve cells. I mean, just astronomically enormous numbers of components to achieve the kinds of computations which are necessary not only to move us around successfully in the world, but also, and a bit curiously and mystically, to generate this impression, this subjective impression we have of ourselves. Okay, all right. So maybe it's just a subjective impression. What, what about you, Simon, when you look at me, are you looking at self, uh, my subjective impression of myself? What is, what are we talking about? No, no, I, I, I agree with Mary entirely, and, yeah. and I think Colin too, that uh, it's, it's best, best, uh, what a diplomat. Best, best, best said that we, I'm looking at a person. Right. Um, that is an active, living, breathing human being who's capable of thought and intention. Certainly intentionality, as Colin rightly says, is very important. Um, so so I we, think, ab we abandon the yeah. word self? Um, you I think you could abandon the noun without yes, very much loss. Yes, yes. Um, I recently wrote a book about emotions concerned with the self, things like vanity and self-esteem and narcissism and so on. And I took the trouble to count the hyphenations with the words, word self in front of them in the Oxford English Dictionary. And I got to 85 before the letter C. Um, self-awareness, self-interest, uh, self, uh, self-ability, all those selves. And then I gave up. I thought, I can't go on doing this yes, throughout this the alphabet. mythical being, the mm, self, has been yeah. invented quite lately by philosophers. Yes, yes that's right. right. Okay, yes, looks like we can so finish early. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what about you, Colin? Just ditch the word self, use person instead? No, because I think the concept works extremely well. Mm, yeah. It'd be silly. Imagine, um, and let me get back to this point about language. Um, imagine trying to tell someone else uh, about, your, about what you're going to do without reference to your, you as an entity and reference to your perceived wills and intentions to act. So, you, you know, I'm going to go and have a cup of tea after this talk. Fine? Neat and easy. Imagine trying to say that same thing without reference to an, an agent, without reference to will, without reference to intention. I could say, you know, this, this collection of cells which, which makes up me... Um, has the disposition to m move out of the room uh, after this talk so as to satisfy certain base appetites that it, it has and will consume some food and a cup of tea. I mean, it would be so ponderous to speak in those terms about ourselves. So we have this succinct description which works very well for communication between us, which, ca which captures and contains notions like self and in intention. Uh, could I just, just take one minute more to explain? Because I think that... Simon's analogy with computer structure is an interesting one. Because in thinking about why the brain goes to the trouble of creating a meta-representation which is false about how it works is an interesting question. Why does, 
I mean, we, it's undeniable. We have these views about ourselves. We have these feelings of intention and will. And those, therefore, must be a product of our brains. So there must be neural machinery which is, deli- which is as it were, deliberately generating an illusory representation of how the brain really, really works. Why? It must have a function. It must have evolved. And I think it, it, the comparison I'd make is like uh, the icons on your PC screen and how they relate to what's actually going on in your PC. You look at your PC screen and it has, you know, it has a recycle bin or something and it has uh, um, icons that represent apps and you can move things around by dragging them and that works well enough for you as a description of what the computer's doing. I mean, it's laughable in terms of its relation. There is a sort of loose relationship between the reality of the guts of the computer and what's on the screen, but clearly the things on the screen are not what the computer is actually doing. And I think the same might be true in this meta-representation which is generated by the brain that somehow enters this state we call consciousness or has subjectivity associated with it. What's it for? And I think it's mainly for underpinning a form of representation appropriate for communication with other people about how the brain is working. Thank you. Mary, you wanted to come in. Yes, I've been watching him on his machine all the afternoon. Um, I knew it would come in again. The, the parallel between people and computers is a very rash and loose one. You can use it in all sorts of misleading ways, and the suggestion that it simplifies it doesn't work. Um, we would <laughs> um, what, yes, I mean, the, the reason why we employ these social units that we do employ, why we talk about persons and why dogs think about particular dogs and birds about particular birds, is that this works very well for social life. And our brains have restrictively grown up in situations where that was true. So our brains don't have suddenly to uh, distort the vision of what they're showing. They are using the experience which has for the whole of life of the species been building up the thought of what, thinking about another bird or another person, not thinking about what's inside their brains. This is not on, was not on until lately and isn't any good now. I mean, suppose that you look at Einstein's solution to his problem and you find it rather hard to understand do you ask for more information about brain life science, brain cells? You do not. You follow his thinking, and that thinking has been necessary to build up the whole background against which only he could say what he did. Um, it's, it, it's all part of social life. Uh, it's, it's a lot of, 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 of structure, uh, which is part of the existence of the species and is not separate from the, phys- the physique. Okay. The physique needs it. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Theme 2
Okay, well, I'm going to move us on to the next question in a moment, which is um, whether the self is essential to us, whether we can do without it. And I think we've already got some shreds of answers in this. Uh, so what I hear Colin saying, among other things, is that, well, look, we probably don't need a self kind of metaphysically. We don't need to postulate it as a sort of a, um, a kind of overarching philosophical construct. But nevertheless, it's jolly useful in terms of representing what we're doing in the world. It has a sort of pragmatic function. We can talk about ourselves as going to get a cup of tea, for example. Then we're also, I hear in what both Mary and Simon are saying, the idea that, well, yeah, yeah you know, the notion of a self is okay, but there are some risks in it because it can create this internal preoccupation, the self plus the hyphen that Simon talked about, this self -reflex, excessive self-reflexivity that Mary is talking about, and that possibly the category of person, insofar as it's more social and holistic, might be valuable to us. Let's ask the big the question in as big terms as possible. Can we still be human without a self? So, Simon, have a go at that. Yeah, um, I'll have a go at that in a second. Could I just yeah. pick up something? Um, I'm a little worried about Colin's fairly ca casual suggestion that quite a lot of the way we think is an illusion. Um, I'm not sure I go along with that. Uh, and let me explain why. Um, there are illusory ways of thinking about the self. Um, people believe they can imagine things, and because they think they can imagine them, they think they're possible. And that gives rise to, I think, an illusion of metaphysics. So, for example, a lot of people think they can imagine um, having lived life as, well, if you're female, Cleopatra, it usually is, and if you're male, it's probably Napoleon. So you can imagine having been, and that means yourself having been Cleopatra, yourself having been Napoleon. The whole religion's built on the idea of transmutation of the soul. Um, now that's an illusion. I think that's a bad illusion. Um, and I think one way of thinking about that illusion is to notice um, when I do what I call imagine myself having been Napoleon, what I do is imagine the world as seen by Napoleon. So I actually imagine looking at the desert wastes of Austerlitz, looking at myself and finding myself rather short and in a French uniform and talking in that strange version of French, which is what I would put on if I was trying to imitate a Frenchman and so on. Um, and that's not actually imagining being Napoleon. It's imagining the world as perceived by somebody, some very ham actor playing Napoleon. And that's all I can do. And that's not transporting a self into a different scenario. Okay. And I think that way of thinking about the self is thoroughly illusory and has to go. But thinking of myself as just as an agent, as somebody who does things like I'm about to lift a glass of water and have a drink of it, there's no illusion there that I can perceive. Okay. Hmm. So thanks for that. But I still want to come back to this bigger question, and I'll, um, I'll ask Colin first and then, then you, Mary. So can I be a human being without a self? Well, I, think we, I, know, I think we operate more efficiently because we have this model of ourselves as agents. So um, to that extent, it's a necessary part of being a full human being. But that is not to say that the self-ishness, not selfish, but self-ishness of us 
is either a, a, an entity which is separate from our bodies or indeed is, is really an integral part of how we work in the world. And, and let me just clarify what I meant by illusion because obviously I didn't express it clearly. What I mean is that, that um, it would be very surprising if whatever consciousness is, whatever subjectivity means, that it should remarkably provide us with an accurate description of how we work. I mean, it is a, it is a kind of account of how, of how we work. When I, when I think of myself operating the world, when I think of what I'm seeing in the world and what I'm, 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 I'm hearing, is a sort of account to me internally um, of, of the processes that are happening in my head and in my mind. But there, there are lots of reasons to believe that elements of that account are inaccurate when they concern the senses, for instance. We know about illusory parts of sensory representation. We know about hearing things that don't actually exist and all these sorts of things. Um, and equally, I think that the representation which we incorporate in our own subjective experiences of how we work and operate in the world are, to that same extent, illusory. They're not necessarily an accurate description. Hence my analogy with the icons on the computer screen. They're a different sort of description, which is incomplete, and in some respects, a bit of sleight of hand involved. Okay. I'll come to, come to Mary in a second, but uh, on your account of self as agency, I think my father would not be a human being. I say this because he's got severe dementia. I don't think he has any agency whatsoever. So would he count as... Yeah. A uh, human being. Do you know, I think, well, there are two answers. Of course, as a human being in terms of rights and history and, and family and relationships, of course, he's a human being. In terms of the attitudes of other people to him and what he's capable of doing, I think, you know, his humanity is, is diminished, if not even abolished, if, if, the, if his dementia is very deep. And I think we don't let people use... Phrases like, he's not the person that he was, or in some cases, he's no longer a person to me, or whatever. You know. And, and that, we use that sort of terminology freely because we recognize in other people actions um, that qualify them, if you like, to be thought of as having the same sorts of intentional states that, that we have. And when people lose those, we don't fully think of them as being complete people anymore. Okay. And Mary, uh, yes, just the, well, big, the big question. Can we be a human being without a self? <laughs> this meaning of self has been buggered around a great deal so that it's a bit difficult, sure, difficult to be sure what this means. But I must start by saying that I was shocked and appalled by the move that has just been suggested of making definitions of what it is to be human such that you can cut, out, cut some people out with them. Uh, being human is a very complicated thing. And as it's a kind of compliment, if you start taking it away, uh, you, you, you exclude a person from the group of which we are all part. This is no trivial matter. I don't know what makes anybody want to do it. Um, I mean the, the, the idea of being without a self, uh, the first thing I thought you meant was without an inner life, uh -huh. without your consciousness. Well, you can't get that. That's, you know, the, the, the organisms that we are um, have <laughs> are conscious, and their, their lives is built up in a way which involves their doing things consciously all the time. This is not an extra. We do things on purpose, and all animals have some consciousness of doing what they do on purpose. Um, this is, uh, you see, a thing that I think people still find 
Hard to believe that evolution has produced that. Well, why should you get, get so incredulous about evolution? It's produced a lot of other funny things, and it certainly appears to have produced this. So there is no need to bring in an extra divine source for this um, element in our lives, um, and you can't cut it off. Um, uh, if we're then asking something slightly more interesting, what... How important is this in the life, human life that we all live? I think the answer must be that it is pretty important, but that it takes different forms in everybody, and that we all need to be conscious of each other's consciousness. The whole co communication business uh, involves um, imagining all the time, not just this rather silly kind of Napoleon, you know, but. Um, imagining what everybody else is doing, that it is partaking in their consciousness. And as we, we're pretty good at this, the way uh, evolution has gone on, we know an awful lot about what other people are thinking because we are uh, designed and evolved to do that. Um, I mean, it often strikes me how one is surprised when some slight step wrong goes on and everybody uh, responds to it at once uh, how 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 easy it is for us to to get across i mean this sort of discussion is often conducted on the assumption that we don't know what each other is thinking unless we happen to tell each other but it isn't true is it uh, <laughs> okay sorry i will stop there thank you mary all right well i'm conscious of time and we are Conscious uh, of time. Yeah, conscious <laughs> of time, exactly. Uh, because I have a self. Uh, uh, consciousness uh, of time is one of the hardest things indeed. to... <laughs> but that's not the subject for today, thankfully. Theme three. We've got one third and kind of final topic area, and it's really about... Well, the question is stated is, so who's going to decide? And, and what's behind the question is whether... It, it's the discipline of science, particularly neuroscience, rather than, and I'll state it as an antagonism, rather than the language of philosophy, broadly conceived, that has the right or will win the day in this debate over the nature of the self. So we're, we're asking a sort of question about discourses, disciplines, and languages, and their privilege or not over deciding this question of what the self is. So that's and we're bringing out in this question, I think, some of the tension you can hear on the panel here from different points of, from different points of view. So, uh, I don't know, maybe Simon, do you want to begin this? Um, well, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Um, in possibly the, certainly the best paper written about free will in the last 60 years of philosophy, uh, the great Oxford philosopher Peter Strawson. It's called Freedom and Resentment. It's available on the web. I counsel you all to read it. Um, he distinguished two ways of looking at a person. There's the personal way, which I think has been emphasized by Mary, and there's what he called the objective way. And when you take up the objective stance, you stop being involved with the person's consciousness and thoughts and intentions and plans and purposes and history, um, and you look at them as, and then the wonderful phrase he used was, something to be managed or handled or cured or trained. Um, in other words, uh, they become something like, perhaps, uh, suppose they stand in your way, then they become something like bad weather or a nuisance, something to lock up or possibly destroy. Um, and he thought it was frightfully important that we didn't lose sight of the personal attitudes 
and go straight over to the impersonal attitudes in which, as it were, you're no longer, longer treating the other person as human. Um, you're treating them as potentially something to um, possibly be um, put away, uh, put down, bought, sold, whatever, uh, all the ways we can treat things. Uh, and I think that's a very, very important distinction. It's important to our humanity that we don't lose it. Um, so I don't think there's any real prospect of good people, <laughs> it brings in a moral term, um, going completely over to the objective stance. That would be asking th right. them to stop belonging to the human world. And so none of us are going to accept that invitation, I hope. So how far is that a coded way of saying philosophy is a more rounded way of talking about the self than science is? Well, I don't think it's philosophy so much. It's just the language we all use. It's the everyday language of okay. thoughts, intentions, purposes, love, history, hope, desire, intentionality, as Colin said. But I think it's frankly important that we don't belittle yeah. it. Colin. Uh, you know, neuroscience um, gets a bad press sometimes, and for good reasons, because I think that the, uh, the enthusiasm of neuroscientists sometimes makes them stray beyond, as it were, the credibility of the pre present descriptions they can, they can give. Um, but I would bet you'd say the same thing about 16th century cosmologists. Um, you'd criticise their naivety, and of course they made mistakes too and went off on tangents, but, gosh, you have to admire the power of, of science in other areas uh, to plod along steadily, minor distractions now and then, and get, you know, produce ever more satisfying explanations about how things work. And I'm you know, confident that neuroscience will do the same thing. And at this state, stage, that's, a, that's an expression of confidence rather than you know, f fully uh, d developed evidence that I could adduce for the statement. But, you know, it is, we can give... The beginnings of really good accounts of how we understand the world through our, our senses, how we integrate that knowledge, how we make uh, conclusions from the evidence we have, how we store things as different forms of memories, how we plan appropriate actions to carry out. You know, we're doing quite well along all of those, those, those paths. There's still huge problems to, 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 to solve. But, you know, neuroscience will come back in 100 years' time to, to this topic at Hay, and, and you can be absolutely sure there will be more and more and more and very impressive evidence to add to the scientific account of how we as, as human beings um, work. I happen to hold a chair of philosophy and neuroscience, although saying I'm a philosopher is, is an embarrassment in front of these two. But, um, and I think that's, you know, it's important that it's even conceivable that an individual or a department like my institute can try to embrace both approaches to problems. I mean, principally, we work on the senses, and that might be the easy end of the, the spectrum of interaction between philosophy and neuroscience. But the notion is that there could be parallel descriptions in different sorts of language, philosophical language and scientific language, which sometimes coalesce, and the intention should be to try to discover all the, all the ways in which they can merge and coalesce. Maybe we'll be left with irreconcilable differences in view produced by those two different disciplines. But my would guess would be that they will come closer together rather than further apart. Mary, how about you? Yeah, I mean, there's one kind of situation in which neuroscience is tremendously helpful, and we're <coughs> all very glad that it's now there. That's when things go wrong. That is, a person's thinking no longer makes sense as thinking. But there's <laughs> so there's something physical wrong, so someone's got to find it. And of course, this 
also raises questions of relation to the senses and people being blind in various ways they can understand things and things of that sort. Here I applaud it and call for it very readily, but I don't think there's any continuity from that to getting some sort of further explanation of what thinking actually is. When people are thinking relatively normally and sanely, I have yet to hear any suggestion from neuroscience that's going to help me to understand them better, and I'm still waiting. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Mary for her generosity and wisdom over the years. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) Auto Trader.